Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everybody. Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Lynn Cook, the Chief Financial Officer here at the Library. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank the elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we now are privileged to call home. Tonight is our fourth event with the Grattan Institute. Since its launch in 2008, the Grattan Institute has established a profile as a leader of independent analysis of Australian uh, domestic public policy aiming to influence both public discussion and senior decision makers. Tonight, the Grattan Institute turns its attention to the issue of the national super policy. The Commonwealth Government recently tasked the Productivity Commission with a review of Australia's super system. The resulting draft report, Superannuation, Assessing Efficiency and Competitiveness, highlights that while the system is working well for some, there are many who are missing out. Our expert panel tonight will look at the possibilities for superannuation reform in Australia and what a reform system could mean for the well-being of Australians' finances as they enter retirement. Our speakers tonight are Sally Lone, CEO of the Financial Services Council, and John Daly, CEO of the Grattan Institute. Please join in welcoming John and Sally to the stage. Well, thank you, Lynn, very much uh, for that introduction. It's a complete pleasure to be back here at the National Library um, in Canberra. Uh, obviously, Grattan is a national institution, and that means that one of the things we are very much part of is talking to our national government in Canberra, as well as talking to a series of state governments uh, around the country. Uh, and we're very um, grateful for this partnership with the library, uh, which enables us to run these public events uh, in Canberra, uh, as Lynn explained in our introduction, we think it's really important that Grattan speaks both directly to power and to people who influence power and also to the public uh, because uh, one of the things I learned very early in my career is that when you change the hearts and minds of the public, then the hearts and minds of our politicians tend to follow very shortly thereafter. Um, so thank you all very much for coming and we hope you enjoy the discussion. Um, there's a lot going on in superannuation. Uh, Sally might comment on this in just a moment, but uh, I would struggle to think of a time in which there are more issues that are genuinely live in the superannuation area uh, than at the moment. Uh, the one thing that's probably not on the table right at the moment is tax, but I'm <laughs> guessing we haven't heard the last of that, um, but a huge number of other issues. And we're hoping... We were originally tonight planning to do something very specifically on super for women, which is an extremely important issue, and we will touch on that. But we decided that given um, that there'd been a major Productivity Commission report, um, uh, which is not light, so I recommend that you read it online because otherwise it'll break the desk. Um, there's been um, very substantial measures announced in the budget, uh, some of which have been uh, introduced into Parliament, uh, that it was appropriate to talk about all of these issues, which are very much live and before us. So I'm really, really privileged to have with us tonight uh, Sally Lone. Sally is the Chief Executive of the Financial Services Council, which essentially represents um, 
uh, private sector players in the financial services industry. Is that a fair summary? That's it. Uh, so in particular, banks and insurers uh, and, and the private sector um, insurance uh, super funds, most of which are allied to the banks. Um, uh, I think that excludes the industry funds, but we'll have plenty to say about those. And uh, it, I think you can take it as read that Sally and I are not going to agree on everything that will be said about industry funds. Uh, so um, uh, rest assured, their interests are very much represented as well. Um, so it's great to have you here. Uh, Thanks, of course, John. Sally has a very distinguished career, not least uh, as one of the country's most distinguished journalists, uh, and then uh, has really been a um, very influential voice for the financial services sector, which, of course, has a number of other things that it's facing at the moment. Mm. Uh, and if we manage to run out of things to say on super, which is very unlikely, we can talk about the Banking Royal Commission, but mm. probably not tonight. What fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Sally, thank you very much for Thanks, coming John. here, and it's, it's great to have you here. Um, in terms of, of superannuation, you know, perhaps the number one issue that's come out of the um, superannuation report that the Productivity Commission has done is, well, first, you know, super's mm. a really big deal. And, 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 mm. and they do a great job of documenting it's a really big deal. Um, you know, it's got $2.6 trillion in assets. Mm. You know, it's worth thinking that's kind of more than the total value of the Australian stock market. Yeah, it's massive. In fact, Australia is uh, what doesn't have a great big population, but um, our pension system or a superannuation system is the fourth largest in the world behind the US, the UK and Japan. So that gives you some sense of the size of it. Um, We've always had superannuation, I think, since 1900, but the compulsory system has been in for exactly as old as my eldest child, uh, 25, 20, going on 26 years. Um, I remember when compulsory super came in to Australia because uh, I was having that baby and I was a journalist and I wasn't paying any attention to super. It came in at 3%. It was compulsory. Um, and I absolutely resented it. And I said, look, what's this super thing? I'm, I'm not interested. I'd rather have that 3% in my pocket so I could do other things with it, like, you know, um, prepare for my, my, my coming family. So I was of that generation that really didn't pay attention. Um, and I am now, uh, I guess, a warrior for making sure that young people do pay attention to super mm. because it is the biggest, um, besides a home, the biggest um, asset that anybody will have in that generation that yeah. will go through it having for um, their lifetime. So it is big. I mean, if you if you think about two point six trillion, it's kind of hard to get your mind around. That means the average assets in Australia, the average Australian has a hundred thousand dollars in super. Now, of course, it's not randomly distributed and evenly distributed, but that's the average, uh, and it's also costing us a lot. So the Productivity Commission estimates that the total cost of running our superannuation system, so that's obviously the administration sending you pieces of paper every year, actually managing it, so paying various fund managers to go and invest it in companies and decide who to invest in and all the rest of it, um, the transaction costs that go with all of that, all of those back office costs add up to about $30 billion a year, three zero. So let's just think about that. That's in the order of $3,000 per household per year. This is double your electricity bill. Don't, you know, electricity is, you know, that's, that's the small problem. Superannuation costs are the big problem, uh, relatively speaking. Uh, and, of course, it, it has an enormous impact on retirement, mm. as you say, although it is worth remembering that, you know, many people have very substantial assets outside of their home and outside of their super. Mm. And, you know, I think one of the things you've got to bear in mind in terms of retirement incomes is that non-super, non-home 
chunk of acids is a material part of the story, but mm. that's not the only thing we... That's that's a, a point we can maybe talk more about um, on another occasion. Mm. Um, in terms of, of this system, though, as you point out, it's something that people aren't very interested in. Mm. Indeed, one of the things I learned when I was working for the ANZ was that people's dominant emotions around financial services are fear. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, of course, we make this thing compulsory. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So Which we, means a lot of people ignore it. Yeah. Just, yeah. So um, that, I guess, brings us to the issue of the costs mm. and, and the default system because there are a bunch of people who are forced into it, a bunch of people who exercise more choice. But let's focus on the people who don't pay very much attention. Mm. So at the moment, they're defaulted into a fund which... Um, is essentially determined either by their employer mm -hmm. or by their award. Um, uh, and if they don't actively choose, that's where they wind up. Yeah, that's exactly right. The Peace Productivity Commission has suggested something else. What do you think is the right answer there? Mm. What should we be doing for defaults? <laughs> Given that by definition, we're talking about the majority of Australians mm. who literally don't choose. And it doesn't matter how much you kind of wave at them. Mm a large number of them are not going to make conscious mm. choices about this. Yeah, look, that's right. I think there'll always be a proportion of people who will, in a mandatory system, um, won't make that conscious choice. You can't make every single Australian actually think about superannuation from the moment they they, they get a job um, and, and make a choice about a fund. Um, that's a pity. I, I think everybody should have the choice. I mean, when you start a job, you don't tell the boss um, what... You know, you don't say to the boss, you put it in a bank account of your choice. You actually have a bank account and you say to the boss, this is where I want my super to go. Um, so you don't allow your boss to make that choice for you about a bank account. So why should you do it about a super account? And I think, I think if people thought about it that way, it's actually such an important decision. Um, because as John said, you know, there, there is a wide amount of choice. There are all sorts of ranges of fees and, and all sorts of ranges of, um, of products, and we can get into that in a moment. But um, look, we're always going to have some people defaulting. So I think um, because this started 25, 26 years ago, and it started at a small amount of money and it's gradually got bigger and bigger and now it's 9.5% of our salaries. It's just grown and grown and grown. Compounding interest is a wonderful thing and that means the size of the prize now is huge. And to John's point, um, we're now talking about superannuation in a way that we probably didn't a year or two ago. I could go around Parliament House, as, as John has many times, and just get eye-glazing You know, when you start to talk about super. You don't now. People are actually thinking, this is real, this is, this is something we have to pay attention to because it is so big now. It's, it's massive. Um, I think Paul Keating said the other day that the tipping point has come and the superannuation system is, is, is bigger than the banks now or capitalised, um, or bigger than the bank capitalisation now. Um, I'm not sure if that's right, but it, it's, it's, it's approaching that. It's massive. Um, Australian super, Aussie super is the biggest um, in, and I think that's got something like 140 billion um, funds under management. So massive. Um, and the Productivity Commission has spent two years looking at default super. Um, they're, they're, they're looking at its efficiency um, and whether it's effective. And they've come up with some really, really interesting findings. Now, John and I are probably going to differ around the edges and maybe with one big one that we'll talk <laughs> about in a minute, but the key um, finding that, that we've advocated as EFSC for a long time is that super should be taken out of the industrial re relations system because we think that every Australian should have choice and should be able to make that choice. Um, so why get defaulted into a fund that your boss or your employer or your union says? Um, 
The second big thing that I think will be really interesting and will change for change people's thoughts around super is that instead of every time you change a job, you default it into another fund, and that means there, there are something like um, 10, how many million um, extra funds, accounts out there, than there are people. I mean, it is extraordinary. There are all these people with all these multiple accounts, and you've got fees and insurance um, premiums eating up all of those individual accounts. So the productivity looked at that, the commission looked at that and said, that's not efficient or effective. So they've said, once you default, and if you do default into one fund, you can carry that with you for life, just like a tax file number. And I think that's another game changer for super. It will mean that you won't get people with um, eight different funds. I, I walked into a newsroom the other day. It was um, a business news channel where you'd think a lot of people would you know, know about super. And they were talking about how many funds they all had. And one of the journalists said oh, she had eight. And yeah. that's not effective. Uh, the good news for anyone here is, uh, and we'll be talking about what government's doing about this as well, but if you are in this situation, do not send your fund lots of pieces of paper. Simply go to the ATO's website, yes. the same place that you lodge your electronic tax return, and as you are lodging your electronic tax return, go to the little bit that says super and basically click all the buttons that says I would like to aggregate all my accounts and you can kind of pick whichever one you want to aggregate them to and then magic happens out the back. Yep. They all come together and you're richer than you ever dreamed of. One, one of the things that really interested me and, and I think technology is going to again be a game changer there's some new um, digital super funds that are coming into the market now, and they're really clever. They market on social media. Um, they market to a lot of young people. On the day that the PC came out, this um, fund basically sent out um, um, media, social media with all their followers, including me. I, I don't have a fund with them, but I'm a follower on Instagram, so they sent it to me. Click this button, and it'll take you out the back and all your... Um, all your multiple accounts will be consolidated. That's clever. That's classy. Okay, so let's get to the kind of the, the kind of real issue here, which is okay. So yes, it sounds like a pretty good idea that if people aren't going to make active choices, they only wind up with one fund, not ten funds, none of which they've chosen. Might as well only have one fund that they've chosen. Killer question is, so what's that one fund going to be? Yeah. Now I agree with you. If we're trying to pick reasonably good funds, it's hard to imagine why a bunch of people who are expert in industrial relations are the right people to pick a reasonably good super fund. And we're talking about the Fair Work Commission which here, the Fair which work does Commission. a great job on fair work, well, but are, they are There are some judges. people who are not so sure about that. But anyway, <laughs> well, <laughs> passing over that problem, I don't think any of them would claim to be great experts no. in financial services, and they're certainly not picked on that basis. So leads to the pretty obvious question. So how should we pick a default fund? Mm. It's a really good question, John. Thank you for that. The Productivity Commission has come out with an idea, and I'm going to ask John about, about the Grattan Institute's um, idea too, um, but the Productivity Commission has come up with an idea that is 10 best in show, and that does sound like a good idea for consumers, and they've used a whole lot of behavioural economics to say, look, people don't like choosing outside 10. 10 10's a good number. And look, there, there are some reasonable arguments for that. Um, we'd like to see a little bit more detail around that. We'd like to understand why 10, why not 20, why not 30. We think if you lift the bar up and make the criteria for getting on a short list or a medium-sized list even higher, then you'd have a whole lot of funds in that list. 
So this was an idea that I think Jeremy Cooper from Challenger sort of um, um, brought out the other day in front of the PC um, live hearings. And I thought, yeah, that's that's not a bad idea either. Just bring the bar up. Oh, sorry, Siri's talking to me. She's Siri's probably recording funny. everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I, so. So what Grattan Institute? We wrote a Jim Minifee wrote a piece for us um, called Super Sting, and then followed it up with another piece called. Um, uh, super savings, sort of asking what can we do here? And one of the things we observed was that there were a, a number of systems around the world that essentially ran a tender for the default funds. Um, uh, typically, there'd be a couple of win winners for the tender, so four or five, you'd have some relatively random method of allocating people into those default funds. It might be that you just kind of basically randomly allocated um, employers. You can do various ways, but bottom line is, There'd be a, a tender. Um, funds that did particularly well, had particularly sharp pricing, um, you know, had a reasonably good track record, would probably win the tender, um, and you'd wind up being defaulted into one of those. Of course, if you wanted to choose something else, you know, choose from the hundreds of others, but if you don't make a choice, you wind up there. What the Productivity Commission recommended, as, as Sally outlined, was um, a best in show. Um, which is not a tender. I know that because the Productivity Commission told me that a number of times. <laughs> It does quack a bit like a tender. <laughs> um, and I think that there is a real difference because if you, from a, from a bureaucratic real politic world, if you try and say, oh, well, we've got a higher bar on this and a higher bar on that and everybody who clears the bar is okay, um, the real politic is that um, regulators hate turning around to people and saying, we're rubbing you out because you didn't make the grade. Because they know as soon as they do that, you're going to wind up in the courts and you're going to be arguing in front of the courts that, no, no, I really did make the grade and they didn't take this into account and they didn't take that into account and all the rest of it. Uh, and we have seen how courageous many of our regulators are in the face of quite flagrant um, breaches of all sorts of laws in recent times uh, in the financial services sector. Uh, and so I guess we are very unconfident that that kind of oh, well, lift the bar, is actually going to result in much being pushed out. And when you look at the Productivity Commission, it does document in excruciating detail that there are an awful lot of funds not doing as well as a lot of the others. Yep. Um, and our view is if you're not doing well and that doesn't matter what sort of fund you are, you shape up or you ship out. And I guess what we're saying is we're very unconvinced that the real politic will work. And so much better to say... You're only going to pick 10 and because, of course, the beauty of that is that you can't get it judicially reviewed and it forces you to say, we're going to pick 10 really good ones. And the worst that happens is that there's a, you know, we kind of get the rank order wrong and there's a kind of medium to good one that gets in and a really good one that drops out. That's a problem but it's much less of a problem than having a system in which there's actually quite a lot of not very good ones mm. that make it over the bar or that the regulator can't be bothered pushing out because it all looks like hard work. Okay. I have two questions for you. Of course. One of them is um, how do you stop then that 10 best in show default list becoming the list that stretches out for every Australian who can't really be bothered to go out there or ignores the marketing and just herds into those 10? What happens to that massive amount of funds under management, which is compounding every year, um, that then you get into sort of diseconomics of the market, you get into oligopolies, 
you know, we're already used to that in this country, um, that have an enormous amount of market power then. Um, that's one question for you. And the second question is, we know how political and partisan um, superannuation is for reasons that, you know, we don't need to elaborate, but it is. Um, now, how do, you, how do you become a person that picks those 10, because I think that's going to be subject to a lot of fighting, a lot of, di a yeah. lot of dispute. So, so I, think, I think those are great questions. Um, in, in terms of, of how many, and, and I'd be the first to say, you know, look, the Productivity Commission might be right. You know, we recommended five, they've recommended 10. You know, they might actually be right that for that precise reason that you worry about oligopolies, you might want to go for 10. Um, or 20. Well, I think 10. And why do I think 10? So in my past life, for my sins, I spent time at McKinsey. And, and we had a, a rule of thumb that was actually turned out to be remarkably powerful internally, which was three is few and five is many. Uh, and what that means in kind of microeconomic kind of reality is if you have three players in an industry, there is a fighting chance that they will what's known as tacitly collude. In other words, they will send signals to each other that means that they wind up setting pricing with each other. They don't compete all of that all that hard. It's not technically illegal, but it does mean that they don't work all that hard. Uh, whereas if you have five material players in an industry, by and large, that doesn't happen. And the reason that it doesn't happen is that the incentive, by definition, the fifth player's got no more than 20% of the market. Uh, and so the incentive for them to drop price or you know, improve service or whatever it might be and get a greater market share is quite large because by definition, whatever they do is only affecting you know, their share of the market, which by definition is less than 20% of the market. Because they're you know, doing something very attractive, they're attracting you know, potentially 80% of the market and the price volume trade-off, which is mm. exactly how one thinks about this if one is playing these kind of collusive games, um, uh, is will tend to look attractive. And the other thing is that it turns out that five players find it very hard to signal to each other as a matter of practice. So um, my guess is that 10 is heaps. And indeed, I can't think of any industry I've ever worked in in which there's 10 players actually competing in the same marketplace in which you see any material oligopoly play, uh, behavior. And interestingly, with that saying, three is few, five is many, four turned out to be a boundary case. You know, there were some four-player markets which did collude and some which didn't. But surely that's not in markets that are going to grow as exponentially as the funds under management in that, super. That applied to any market you looked at anywhere in the world, so long as they were all in the same marketplace, which is kind of is genuinely true of the Australian superannuation market. By definition, they're, they're, they're available to mm. all in this brave new world. So what happens then to innovation if you've got 10 massive funds with, you know, hundreds of billions under management? They're all getting a bit fat and a bit lazy. What happens to innovation? Because right at the moment, we've got some really interesting digital players coming in. We've got some fantastic new products coming in. They will just wither on the barn. They won't. So, I mean, innovation will stop. Well, number one, if you've got a 10-player market, you've got plenty of incentive to innovate and, and, and take share from the other nine. Because, and that's why I say three is few and five is many. Well, and then the second thing not if they're all getting equal shares. No, 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 but they're not getting equal shares mm -hmm. because they're competing for the default market. Sorry, they're, they're getting the default yeah, market. Yeah, but they'll get the herd mentality. They'll get the herding from everybody yeah, else in the country. There's plenty of people who are still choosing 
in this world. Yeah, but what I'm saying is well, you get a list out there and the, even the people who choose will go, oh, gee, I like the look of that list and they'll head a- towards it. Absolutely, but I'm choosing. In that world, I'm still choosing from one of those ten. Which am I going to choose? And the answer is, well, the one that does something that, you know, mm. for whatever reason, is attractive. The other thing I would say... Well, suggest- they haven't innovated to date. Have they? A lot of them. Well, no, and that's with hundreds and hundreds of players in the market. So having lots of them may not be the thing that helps. But I think there's something else I would do as part of the market design, um, which is um, uh, I would actually set it up so that if you're going to have 10 funds for your best in show thing that quacks like a tender, um, I would in fact be selecting five of them every, you know, if you want to have them for five years, five of them every two and a half years or whatever you want to do. uh, and that's partly so you don't get you don't you don't want to turn over the entire market at once. You you know mm. having an orderly transition is yep. kind of helpful. And I would also be instituting a rule that says every time you run one of those tenders, at most four of the five can win, mm. and at mo- and therefore at minimum one of them will be pushed out into the cold world. Doesn't that then encourage gaming to get to that? you know, fee gaming, a whole lot of things to get get you to that bar again. Well, it encourages you to work very, very hard at getting back into the thing, into the tender, and that's the whole point. And I think that's one of the things that encourages these 10 to work very hard once they're in the once they're inside the tent because they know that at least one of them is going to be rubbed out and one out of five is going to be rubbed out every Mm. couple of years. And as we know, that focuses the mind and they will compete like crazy to make sure they are not the one that gets rubbed out. And I would say that is exactly the kind of competition I would like to promote. (laughs) All right. You haven't quite convinced me. Um, We would say that that is certainly better than, than what we've got now, which is the default system, you know, in the fair work industrial relations yeah. system. So that's a better system. We we don't think it's ideal, though. Um, and what we're saying is we think a bigger number would be better for a whole lot of reasons. We'd like to get more detail. But the question of how do you get these um, these people, these un, unsullied, unpartisan, non-partisan people to select? Yeah. And look, um, obviously you want a specialised body that does this. Obviously you want to set it up as some kind of, you know, Appointed by governor and council, independent entity. One idea that was floated, the I think, in the hearings the other day was that you would essentially have that council composed of the governor of the Reserve Bank, I think it was the head of APRA, and it might have been the head of ASIC. I, I could be wrong about that. But, but that actually struck me as not crazy. Or alternatively, you could constitute them as the selection committee, if you like. So they pick, you know, six people who know a lot about you know, financial services, and those are, by definition, three people who know a lot about mm. financial services and who's who but in But they zoo. really do. We, we need some super specialists on there. And, of course, superannuation is still partisan. So how are you going to get the really pure people there? Do you take somebody from overseas? Do you get experts? On- I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you're going to do all of the above. Mm. You're going to want to, you know, if you're judging a tender panel, you want some real expertise, so you probably want three or five people on it. You almost certainly want someone who's an expert expert on this from overseas. You probably want an academic in Australia who's done a lot on this. Um, you probably want someone who's retired out of, you know, the superannuation fund industry, <laughs> someone who's retired out of the superannuation management industry. Um, uh, and off you go from there. Uh, you know, mm. It doesn't... We, we, we select independent bodies to do this kind of thing all the time. Um, yeah, we do. But I, 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 in my years, and I used to be a political journalist here in Canberra, I, I don't think I've ever seen a, a sector that's quite as, as partisan as super. Even, even 
energy is not as partisan as super. So I think, John, we're up for a good debate on that one. And and the, the reason I'm so excited to talk about super now um, in this level of detail is that it's been a long time coming. Um, when the Productivity Commission came out, the report, seeing it on the front pages um, every day for about three or four days was really exciting for me and probably for you too and, and quite a few of the people in the room. Um, somebody said to me, it's almost the same coverage as the Royal Wedding. So, you know, that's telling you something. <laughs> Not quite, but almost. I mean, that's good. You know, we need to talk about this. This is a massive part of our economy. Financial services, thanks to super, is the biggest sector of the Australian economy. It's bigger than mining. It's bigger than agriculture. When we go to Japan and talk to fund managers and Korea and Asia, they just look at us blankly. I say we're not a nation of farmers and miners. We're a nation of suits. Mm. And they, they, you know, my goodness. And this has happened because of super. Yeah, and, and it's actually interesting. I mean, this is something that we're kind of acutely aware of at Grattan because we've kind of been part of this history. So when Jim Minifee started working on this, I think, four or five years ago, um, uh, and we, you know, why was a product... So we have a productivity growth program that Jim was running. Um, and, uh, you know, why was a productivity growth program that was looking across the economy working on this? And the answer is, well, when it's worth 1.5% of GDP, it's kind of big enough to care. Yeah. Uh, and it seemed to be a sector that was getting way less attention than sectors that are worth a lot less than that. Yeah. Uh, at the time he was doing his work, uh, the Financial Services Inquiry was running, the so-called Murray Inquiry was running. This was just not on the radar. No. Uh, and one, I think, you know, one of the things we'd like to think is that Jim's report was actually quite influential in getting them to go, oh, I suppose if we're doing financial services, we should probably have a look at this default super thing. Uh, they recommended that you know, this required a wee bit more intention and should be referred to the Productivity Commission. Mm. Government ultimately did that. We're now in the world that we're yeah. in. And mm. you know, to the extent that this has focused attention on something that's costing us $30 billion a year, that, mm. that does seem to be worth um, having mm. a look at. Why don't we move on from the question of, of the default system and, and worry about there's a lot of the system, not in terms of numbers of accounts, but in terms of where the money is, mm -hmm. that is either so-called APRA-regulated funds. So those are all the funds whose names you've heard of, a couple that you haven't. In fact, several hundred that you probably Quite haven't a lot heard you of. Haven't. <laughs> um, uh, who um, you know have lots and lots of members. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the self-managed super fund sector, yes. which is now, I think, about a third of the it is, yeah. entire assets. Mm -hmm. So those are, by definition, accounts that people have chosen to go into, mm -hmm. possibly advised by a financial planner, possibly not. Um, we know that the costs in that sector are very high. Um, what do you think we should do about the costs in that? Because we've tried competition, mm -hmm. or at least we've tried having lots of competitors. You mean in SMSFs? Well, in both SMSFs and in sector. the APRA fund sector. You know, we've got mm. literally hundreds of funds. Mm. Um, and the fees that people are paying mm. are very high. Mm relative to international standards, relative to the funds that are the lowest cost yep. in the industry. And the, the Productivity Commission came out essentially with evidence that was exactly the same as in our report, which is bad news. There is very little correlation between the fee that you pay and the before fee return that you get. And there's a very tight correlation between the fee that you pay and the after fee return that you get because essentially the fee is the one thing that you can predict. Mm. <laughs> and essentially, if you, you know, for long run returns, given that it's very hard to guess which fund is going to do better than another, mm. 
pick one that's low cost and you're probably going to wind up better off than any other way of picking. Yep. So what are we going to do about all of the things that are not default? Look, I think the first, I think the best thing is that now people are starting to focus. And I know there are a lot of people in the room. Um, my son's 25. He's, he, we, we talk about super now. We never used to. We do now. Um, and he said to me, I'm sticking with the one I've got because it's got low fees. So he's heard that message. Great. You know, good, good decision, mate. Go for it. Um, uh, he might make a, another decision when he's a little bit older. He might want to do some other things in that in that fund, but at least now he's he's thinking about it, and that's key. If people can engage with super from day dot and, and, and understand the fees, I think that's really important. Look, there's a lot of hidden stuff too, um, and what ASIC is trying to do now is to introduce um, a lot more transparency, and that's something that the Productivity Commission and the government um, is very focused on doing, and that's introducing... Um, uh, basically saying to the super funds, you've got to be more transparent about where your fees are because there are all sorts of hidden fees and costs and they're, they're not as transparent as they could or should be at the moment. Um, look, our mantra, obviously, in being in the private sector, John, is, is that competition in every part of our economy does, um, does bring costs down. But, so why hasn't it worked in super? We've got well, hundreds we of competitors. Yeah, I'm lots not sure. of choice, but not much real competition. Yeah, I think that's because a lot of people haven't paid attention. They just haven't paid attention. And I think, I mean, we got Deloitte to do some work for us, and it did show that um, if you apply competition policy to superannuation, fees should come down. Um, one thing I can say, and we've had work done on this, and I, um, um, the FSC represent, represents funds managers who basically take the money from the super funds and, and, and make it grow. Um, they've got a, they're in, a, in an incredibly co competitive environment in Australia. They actually have lower fees than a lot of their other sort of satellite um, countries and, and uh, around the world. And in fact, they tell us that they have to get permission. Um, from some of their, you know, global headquarters to keep the fees as low as they do here. They're the fund managers. So maybe I've, I've, I will confess I've heard the reverse from people in the fund management industry, which was that essentially Australia was known as a pretty soft touch. Well, <laughs> we've done a lot of work on this, and I can absolutely say that they say all the time they have to get permission because the fees for the, the margins are so tight here, and, so, and so they're very tight. So why then are the costs so high? I mean, so what this means is if you think about thirty billion in costs, right? That is effectively a cost of about 1.2-1.3% of the assets. Um, you would expect it to be around about 0.6, maybe 0.5. In fact, if you get the really, really keenly priced funds, they are delivering at around somewhere around about 0.4-0.5. So clearly it's possible. Mm -hmm given all of the complexity of the Australian regime to deliver that. And, you know, it's, those yep. funds are, you know, they're not going out backwards doing it. So if it's really true that we're getting such a good deal mm. out of our fund management, why but, is it that the costs are so well, high? Well, there are a whole lot of other things in there. I look at my own personal situation. I'm willing to pay a higher fee to have someone do some magic on my super because I haven't got enough. I'm the wrong side of 50, so I'm pushing really hard to get an outcome that I want and I'm paying higher fees for that. Now, I'm not going to be happy to be in a fund that just grinds along, yes, good value for money, etc. I actually have to pay some active fund manager, an active fund manager to try and get a lot of alpha for me to grow because I have not got enough super. I'll be working till I'm 90. 
because um, I haven't got enough. You know, I was one of those women that just didn't pay attention and I had career breaks and all of those things. So, yes, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for mine. Yep. And I, and I and the other end of the scale, some of those new funds that are coming in, those digital funds, some of them have started off with very high fees too. But guess what? Some young people go, you know what? That's convenient for me. They speak to me on the platforms I like. You know, they're on, the, they're on Facebook, they're on Instagram, they're talking to me. Yes, it might be a bit higher, but I'm willing to pay that because I'm getting attention. And it's easy. Three swipes and you've opted out of life insurance if you want to. Three swipes and you've opted into a, to a higher um, investment um, 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 fund rather than just a balanced one. It's easy. So some people prefer to pay a bit more for that. So, so I accept that there are some things that many people are prepared to deliberately choose to pay for. But, but can I suggest to you there's a kind of middle ground here, which is people who've you know, notionally chosen a fund or been advised to pick a fund a long time ago, and they haven't thought about it really hard. As we said, their dominant yep. emotion around this stuff is fear. Uh, and we have an, an industry in which there are 40,000 products, many of which are closed. Now, why are they, you know, what that means is you and I can't join that product, which often, very often, turns out to have very, very high fees mm. and is delivering very ordinary performance mm. and particularly ordinary performance after fees. Mm. So what's going on here? Well, to be blunt, the institution knows those people are the people who are not paying attention. They can afford to charge them a very high fee. If they make it a closed fund, it gets much less attention doesn't have to report in the same way as all of the other things do. And it's not delivering anything for those higher fees apart from much higher profit. So what do we do about that? Those, uh, I would suggest, I don't know how many of these legacy products there are, but they're... 40,000 products in the industry yeah, suggests but quite a, a lot. There's a, the, they're, they, they, the, the people who are in those products need to pay attention. They need to look at those products and say, I want, I want to leave those definition. products. definition... These are the people who are not paying attention and who are fearful. Because it's great for people like you and me who are fascinated by this stuff and you know, deeply steeped yeah, in the I, industry. But I didn't. I was never that fascinated yeah, by but this you, stuff. But you've been paid to learn about this stuff. <laughs> yeah, but that can, apply to, that can apply to everybody. That can apply to everybody. And I also hit a certain age point where I went, you know, I better be fascinated by this stuff because it's actually important. And if I'd been stuck in one of those legacy products, it's the same if you're in a really bad default fund too. We had a look at some of the numbers and if you're stuck in a default fund that's um, delivering 2% growth and you're paying 2% fees and there are funds out there that people are stuck in, they're only stuck because they haven't bothered to have a look, yeah. partly. So, so I absolutely agree with you that we want to encourage people to take as much attention as possible. Correct. Okay. But the reality is this is a system that we have compulsorily required people to put money into. Correct. It's a system in which clearly a lot of people don't pay attention. In a completely ideal, in a first best world, they all suddenly pay attention. But I want to suggest to you, we are living in a second best world in which a lot of those people are not going to pay attention. They're getting a really bad deal. That's bad deal on money which government has forced them to put into the system, hasn't provided them with a truckload of, of, of guidance and you know, it's limited in how much guidance it can provide. And indeed, one of the best arguments for having, you know, nominated best in show funds is precisely that, you know, to the extent that that attracts people in these closed products to, you know, move them into one of the best in show, chances are they'll be doing a lot better. Mm. I guess what I'm asking is, you know, there are other things that we can do. Should we be, for example, saying to all of these closed funds, well, number one, you're all going to start reporting. The fact that you're closed, 
you still have to post your returns on every single category. What about every single yeah, year? Okay. What about the funds that where people are stuck in there and they can't move? There's a million Australians that because of their awards, because and, of because of the EBAs they're in, they cannot even move. And, they might want to, but they can't. They're and the place there. where I'm very much not going to represent at least some industry funds is to say, I agree with you, right? We should have freedom of choice mm. universally tomorrow. That's mm. a kind of absolute no-brainer. Mm. Um, I mean, I wonder whether there are other things that we can do about these closed funds. Can we, for example, say, um, if you have a fund which is charging more than X, you've got to move the, the, the punters into you know, a fund that charges less than that. Um, uh, you know, is there any reason for a fund to net-net be charging more than 3% a year? And I'd mm -hmm. say, I really struggle. Look, I, look <laughs> I think we, we're, where we're on a unity ticket is people have got to understand it, engage with it and, and choose, have some, you know, choice options. And if you are in a legacy fund, you can choose to move out of that fund. And it is all about engaging. Um, sometimes if you're in a, if you're, if you've defaulted into a certain fund, um, you can't choose your way yeah, out of it. And, so and, and we that's that. why we're having this, we're having this massive discussion now about super. It's got to the point now, it's so big, nobody can ignore it. And there are flaws. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah there are flaws all over it. So we've talked a lot about the investment part of super. Another big part of it, of course, is insurance, because uh, yep. many people wind up with their life insurance, their death and disability insurance as a result of their super. Mm -hmm. And indeed, until now, uh, essentially everybody um, has defaulted into that. So when you kind of sign up, you will normally wind up in some level of insurance and death and disability, life insurance and death and disability insurance. You can often opt into a greater level of cover, but you normally get defaulted into a certain level of cover. Uh, and one of the reforms that was announced in the budget was one of those things that was kind of quite funny on budget night because, of course, you go into budget night kind of looking for all of the big things on the revenue side and on the cost side. And this one was really easy to miss because in terms of its impact on the budget, it's like too small to care. Like you don't see it. But it was announced because it was in there, you know, this little budget measure, it's going to have the following impact on the budget. And because of that, it kind of has to go in there. And, you go, and, and the measure was that um, essentially anybody who is under 25 at the point that they get signed up for a super fund, um, or um, is in a super fund that is no longer active, i.e. they are no longer contributing to it. Um, and it's under $6,000. And it's under $6,000, um, will automatically be defaulted the other way. So you will be defaulted out of insurance. And if you want to opt in, good luck to you. And of course, one of the important rationales for this is if you're under 25, it is very unlikely that you actually need life insurance. Indeed, it's very unlikely it's a good product for you. Life insurance, of course, is in fact doesn't insure your life. Life insurance is designed to help your, your dependents. Mm -hmm. um, and people under the age of 25, by and large, don't have any dependents. Mm -hmm. Indeed, these days, very few people under 30 have dependents. Um, and so uh, it makes sense if a default is kind of supposed to look after most people, you should be defaulting people out of insurance. And of course, the other reality is um, uh, some funds might let you opt out of insurance with three swipes. Uh, but as someone who has a 19-year-old child who tried to opt out of insurance, let me tell you, it was not easy. And that's not just one data point because um, another program director at Grattan Institute, uh, Stephen Duckett, tried to help his 19-year-old. Um, you mean they actually had to read a letter and write a letter and have a wet signature on paper? Several, several of those. It took her nine months. Yeah. <laughs> nine months and quite a lot of persistence from someone who is, you know, pretty well educated. Um, well, Peter Costello told a great story at our summit last year. He said, because I was asking him about 
insurance in super and he's got a son Seb Costello who's a Channel 9 uh, reporter Um, he's probably late 20s and he was talking about multiple accounts he said yes Seb had about five or six of them and he he said dad I just waited for the for the letters to stop and then I knew that that account had had all all the money taken out of it the insurance (laughs) I mean this is in an edge this is a son of the treasurer a former treasurer so you can imagine how many times that's going on in Australian households well and of course worse still that many of these insurance um, uh, contracts have terms that basically say you can't collect from more than one so not only are they selling you insurance that you probably don't need, they are selling you insurance, and indeed they are opting you into insurance, on which they know you cannot collect. Okay. <laughs> All right. I do have to have a put in a good word for life insurers because as a social policy, when superannuation started, it was it was it was deemed then by the the fathers, and they probably all were fathers um, of, insu- of of super, um, that life insurance product within super compulsory in a compulsory system was a social good, because um, if you were left um, permanently incapacitated, if you were if you were hurt at work, then you would get automatically get um, coverage. Same for mental illness. You don't have to be underwritten. You don't have to be refused. It's 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 full cover for you if you're off work and you've got insurance in super. So we actually think it's a very good product and it serves a great social purpose. Um, I think what happened was Australian Super came out and said it was going to stop um, opt out for their under 25, so they're only going to make it opt in, and that sort of was a bit of the dam breaking in a way. Um, and so the government's come along and said, well, we're going to do the same for everybody under 25. Um, I, I still think, John, there is a case for people who work in high-risk jobs, in blue-collar trades, who do go to work every day in a dangerous in- environment. And I think, you know, the coverage for death and TPD and possibly even income protection is useful for them. And there are a number of young people under 25 who still work, who still have families, um, and that cover and that cover is good for them. Um, well, and I'm very happy for them to opt in because because yes, the point about defaults is you should yep. set the default. You can't set a default for everyone. That's kind of by definition. Yep. So you should set your default for the vast majority of the population. Mm. And the vast majority of the population, life insurance is just not right for 25-year-olds. Mm. So, yeah. And and then to come to, to the, the high, high-risk high occupations, and I'd be the first to say, of course, you know, um, well, in fact, mines are not nearly as dangerous as they used to be. You know, it's actually agricultural workers that are the yeah. real problem. Mm. Um, uh, obviously, there are high-risk occupations. But if you think about death, about particularly um, permanent disability insurance for high-risk occupations, by definition, if you're winding up disabled because of your occupation, you are almost certainly going to qualify for workers' comp, mm. yep. which is going to essentially pay out what your um, death, your permanent yep. disability was going to pay out. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why we would be opting people in or defaulting people in just because they happen to work in a high-risk occupation. The fact that they're a high-risk occupation is the precise thing that makes it most likely that mm. someone else is going to pay for it anyway. Mm. Do you know what I'd do? And if I... Yeah, I, I absolutely take your point on that. Um, if I 
But there is an issue about cost of premiums going up if you do take this pool of under 25s out of the pool. Because it's that. just appalling that the idea that we would stop young people cross-subsidising old people. Young people should be forced <laughs> to keep cross-subsidising old people as much as possible. We do that in health, we do that in super, we do that... Um, uh, in, uh, in the budget itself, young people pay lower rates of tax on the same income as old people. So it would be outrageous if we stopped that now well-established Australian tradition in insurance. Premiums may go up. <laughs> what I would do, I, I think everything, everybody is sort of protecting their patch in a lot of these arguments, and this happens all the time, and you see this in Canberra constantly. You know, I work up in the house and you see it constantly. What I would do is have some fresh thinking. If I was sitting on, around a, a trustee table on a superannuation fund, and I was, it, was a, it was a cohort of young workers in, in a blue-collar, um, dangerous jobs, you know what? I'd be going out there and, and spending money on campaigns to talk to all the under-25s in my cohort and saying, you know what? Life insurance TPD is really good. It's a great product. We, it's, it's a cheap product, by the way. It doesn't cost much. I would actually be going out there and saying, you should opt in, and here's why. It's a great product for you guys. And that gives people choice. But it informs them. You know, this, this whole business that everybody's sort of in the dark and, and, and I, I just don't buy that. I, I, I wish superannuation funds would get out there and talk about what they do really well um, with, with their partners like life insurers because I reckon if you've got a great argument for that, then you should go out and sell it and talk to your members. And I think that if we... Um, I'm, I'm very happy for them to do all of that, but uh, they're only going to start doing that if the default's the other way. And, and so, you know, um, I think the legislation makes some sense. Let's, let's move on to a final issue, which is around governance. Um, so there's, there's two issues I want to cover here. One, one is about the, the governance of the funds themselves. Um, the um, government has proposed a reform that a third of directors um, should be, inverted commas, independent for mm -hmm. a lot of these industry funds. Essentially, half are nominated by the employers, half are nominated by the employees. Um, no, half are nominated by the unions. Sorry, by the unions, yeah. rather, by, yeah. the, by the unions. And um, the employers. Half by the employers. Mm -hmm. um, government said, well, we want a third nominated by someone else. Now, there's an interesting, actually, problem, I suspect, with the legislation that's been drafted. These arrangements are essentially set by the um, Fair Work Commission and the awards uh, in terms of who picks what. Um, it's not a normal situation in which the directors are picked by the no. um, are picked by the shareholders. And indeed, of course, the shareholders of an industry fund, which by definition is not for profit, it's kind of a slightly weird concept. You know, like what do they do? They don't actually, you know, it's like the inverted commas shareholders of a not for profit association. They don't <laughs> actually have any rights at all, um, pretty much. Um, but the way the legislation's been drafted, as I understand it, is that a third will be must be independent. And then the remainder will be effectively nominated by the shareholders. Sometimes the shareholder is in fact the union. Sometimes the shareholder is in fact the employer. Mm. Actually, often that's arbitrary because no one really cared. Okay, so <laughs> if the pro if if in another year's time the the default system is is away from the industrial relations system and everybody has one default, or people if they default have one, they take from job to job, then the employer probably doesn't have much of a say anymore. So I, th I think things are going to shift even more radically. So, 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 so they don't—they're not. Perhaps they're not needed around that yeah. superannuation well, trustee well, board. I, I think. I mean, ideally, you want as much expertise as you can. But I think. I think one of the questions is if half in practice are being selected by employers, 
And and I would observe, you know, and certainly I've spoken to the people I've spoken to involved in the industry fund say, look, by and large, employers pick pretty sensible people um, to, you know, uh, be those directors and unions, you know, pick a bunch of people. How much difference will it really make? Because we can observe of the market, actually, the industry funds have done pretty well in terms of their performance. And you kind of look at all of the PC's charts and, you know, to be blunt, the kind of the green industry funds tend to be in the sort of top corner. The big and ones, the, yeah. And the, the big but there ones. are a lot of very small ones yeah, yeah. that are doing very yeah. badly. And and there are some little ones, you know, all green ones also in that corner. And then yep. there's quite a lot of purple ones, which are the retail funds and there's some up in the right hand corner but there's a lot more down at the bottom so mm -hmm. as an overall thing you could say look there are good fund industry funds there are bad industry funds there are good retail funds there are bad retail funds but as an overall thing we could observe mm -hmm. a bunch of retail funds that do have independent directors have not on average outperformed mm -hmm. a bunch of industry funds okay. that don't okay let me talk about um what i know and i don't know anything much about um industry funds because they're not my members um, but what I do know is I know the listed company environment because that's that's where I came from after I was a journalist, and I do understand um, uh, governance that that in, independent directors bring that they strengthen governance around any table. Um, I'm a I'm a director of um, two uh, organisations, um, Venues New South Wales and Destinations New South Wales, and they're all independent directors around those tables. Um, the the reason that the FSC decided to bring in what we call Standard 20, which um, is mandatory, our standards are mandatory and we've got a number of them, um, but Standard 20 pertains to governance of, of, of super funds. Um, we said there needed to be a majority of independents around those trustee boards so that they were separated from the parent company. So you didn't want the same directors sitting around the listed company as sat around the, um, the, the the superannuation trustee board because there may be conflicts of interest. The um, listed company, of course, is um, looks after the shareholders and the company. The trustees are meant to look after best interest of the member. So there could be differences. That's why we came up with Standard 20. Mm. So that's a very good reason for us to do that. I can't comment on the other, you know, the industry funds. Um, mm. But what I do, what I do say as a principle, is that in a mandatory system, which is controlling trillions of dollars, I think we ought to try to go for the best governance standards we can. Um, and ASX guidelines say that we should have majority of independence. They can prevent related party issues. They can prevent conflicts. Um, they can prevent some decisions um, that may not be in, in the best interests of that person from, from, from happening. So that's why, as a principle, I believe in having a majority of independents yeah. around the table. But that is not a comment on the industry funds at all. I am just really talking about what the retail funds do. Yeah. And, and look, I would agree with you as a matter of principle. And I think the kind of interesting thing about this is we have principles, but then we also actually have to look at, well, how much difference does this make in real life? And, you know, the evidence suggests maybe not as much as you might think, given the principle. Let's mm. let's move on from that. I, I want to there's one quick issue I want to cover before we go um, to, a, to some q and I, I want to read you something uh, which I read recently in a, an Australian newspaper. It said, we should be grateful to the Productivity Commission because for the first time it has documented extensively through sound quantitative and qualitative analysis the true problem at the heart of the system that too often members' interests 
are a secondary concern to the vested interests of the funds themselves. Now, you probably would guess that that was written by some, you know, firebrand from the Socialist International, um, you know, in um, Farago, which is the kind of student magazine at uh, Melbourne University. But you'd be wrong. I haven't um, read that for a while, actually, John. <laughs> uh, uh, that is the responsible minister, Kelly O'Dwyer, from the Liberal Party, writing in the Australian Financial Review. Now, I think it would be fair to say them's fighting words. Um, how did we get here? That's not what you would expect to see mm. in that situation. For the responsible minister from a Liberal Party basically saying this entire system is way too often serving vested interests and not consumers. How did this happen? How did we get here? Mm. How did we get here? There's an obvious answer to that, and that is that, um, you know, as I said before, it, I guess it grew up in it was it, it was it started Paul Keating started it essentially um, and it started in the union movement um, it's become a lot bigger than that of course it's massive um, it's become too big to ignore now and I think that's that's where we are yeah. and I think um, as the system's grown up every now and again you do need a review to say, where are we in this system? Is it really looking after the interests of every Australian as it's designed to do? Because superannuation is your salary in your retirement. That's what it is. That's what it should be. It should be what you live on in retirement. Um, so, and the purpose of super, which still isn't legislated, it's stuck somewhere again up on the hill, um, is that superannuation should be there to essentially um, support you, um, every, every Australian to self-fund themselves in retirement and should relieve pressure on the public purse because we simply will not have enough young people um, to support all of us going into retirement. Is, is so we right? need to fund ourselves. Is that so right? Because the way the government's proposed that legislation, I think I, I will not get the wording exactly right, it's to either support, sorry, either to supplement mm. or um, uh, replace yeah. the age pension. Because the reality is for the vast majority of, of Australians, it will not replace the age pension precisely because the age pension's got to taper. So you've actually mm. got to be earning a lot of money to wind up on no pension mm. at all. Um, uh, and then the second issue, I'd, uh, second question I'd have on, on that definition is this. On the numbers that the Treasury has calculated, superannuation is costing the budget more than it saves the budget in mm. pensions as of today. Has been ever since the system started. Starting to go the other way, though. It, it is. Well, it, the lines are kind of heading in the right direction. Mm, they are. And uh, in about 2060, mm -hmm. in about 2060... Uh, it's going to be at the point where it's uh, the amount that we're giving away in super concessions will be mm. less than the amount we are saving in that year in age pensions. And presumably by about 2,100, 2,110, depending on the modelling, it kind of is not great that far out. It will actually be at the point in which the total amount we've paid out in super concessions will be less than the amount we've saved in age pensions. Now, I know, you know, people say we don't do long-term policy in this country, um, but but it does look as though it's not saving okay. the budget any money anytime okay. soon. We, we've done some figures, and yes, if, if we kept it at 9.5 and things kept chugging away, it would get to something like 20... 
45 and there'd still be 80% of Australians on some form of pension, not the full pension, because the good news is people are coming off the full pension and getting onto the part pension. So that means that superannuation is gradually starting to supplement that pension. So look, there'll always be some who will take the full pension, but I think we, we are getting to that point. We actually did some numbers that said you actually should increase the superannuation guarantee and, and do it fairly quickly, get it up to that 12%, 15% fairly quickly, and then you will start to see that that coming, those, those lines in, intersecting faster. And I know you're going to say... That's not how it worked in the past. <laughs> every time you push the... Because, if, you know, certainly on the modelling we've done, every time you push the super guarantee up, um, essentially you wind up paying out all of the super extra concessions immediately. You know, the the point at which you actually mm. start getting the age pension, as it were, back in terms of less spending on the age pension mm. is by definition, you know, usually on average about 30 odd years away. So the numbers look horrible. But isn't it right that a young person starting now in a job, um, putting 9.5 away will have at retirement over a million dollars now? Indeed. If, if those and, numbers And that's go. the most powerful argument for not increasing the super guarantee to 12%, which is that on current rates, on our numbers, mm. we published a piece which is focused on women and super but had these calculations in it and we'll mm. be publishing a more detailed report later this year, basically are already at what we call replacement rates. So about, you know, your post-retirement income so will be about... So you think it should stay at 9.5? We think it should stay at 9.5 because... And that's not just for, you know, happy people at the top of the income distribution. That's actually across the income distribution. Indeed, for people at the bottom... They are already in a position in which their post-retirement income is typically greater than mm. their pre-retirement income because by definition they go onto the full age pension yeah. and by definition they come off either new start mm. or very sporadic part-time work and the age pension is typically larger than those. What, what about if for women, and women do need to catch up and we, we, we've left women as the postscript at the end... Um, not deliberately. Um, women do need to catch up. Women of a certain age do need to catch up and stuff more into super. What about if we um, allowed employers to to pay a higher superannuation guarantee for women who wanted to catch up? Because at the moment, if you try and do that, you've got to go to court and you've got to fight the uh, anti-discrimination laws to do that. Well, so no, no, no. You can voluntarily ask your employer to put as much, well, not as much as you like, but up to $25,000 a year out of your pre-tax income. Yes, but income. if you wanted to, say... Um, put your female employees on 10.5%. Oh, I see. If you, if you want to discriminate, yeah, discriminate positively between, against... Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a, a much bigger issue and we would need a lot of employers to, you know... I mean, I would some, suggest, some do. I, some I would are doing it already, if, but if, they've had to fight the um, anti-discrimination law. If laws. we're halfway serious about that problem, it would be very much easier not to fight the anti-discrimination law, but simply to move women's pay, which is typically less for exactly the same job than men doing Correct. the same job. absolutely. Like, fix that problem. Because, yep. of course, the real reason why women wind up with lower super, lower incomes in retirement is they get paid less during their working life. Correct. A, they work fewer hours. B, they get paid Correct. less per hour. That's why we have to... Yeah. That's why some well, of us have to catch up at the and, end. And then the question is, what's the right government mechanism to solve that? Mm. Because the problem is that super, one, only works for women who've got lots of money. Um, B, only only uh, by definition means that they have less to spend whilst they're working. Yes, you know, there's no correct. free lunch in this thing. Yep. Uh, and C, to the extent that you're going to give them extra tax concessions, it's really badly targeted because the problem is that most of those tax concessions will go to women earning pretty high incomes who tend to be partnered to men with pretty high incomes. Mm -hmm. And the reality is the household income looks terrific. So we wind up giving lots of tax concessions mm -hmm. to households who are already at the top. 
Whereas yeah. I would suggest if we were serious about saying, look, the fundamental problem here is that women don't have enough money in retirement, is, look, if you want to, if you want to increase Commonwealth rent assistance, if you want to increase the age pension, mm -hmm. particularly for singles, maybe you want to have some kind of supplement that effectively winds up um, bumping up singles relative to, to, to couples, that makes total sense. And it's much more targeted to the people you really care about. Mm -hmm. The other thing that some employers are doing, and we do it at the um, FSC, is uh, we we keep paying the superannuation guarantee for women when they're on, um, or men, when they're on uh, parental leave, um, instead of having those breaks, and that can add up as well. Um, I've had a bit of a baby boom in my staff, so we've ended up doing that quite a bit, and it's really, it, 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 is, it seems small, but it's actually really important, because then you have an unbroken line. Of superannuation. And it's certainly very symbolically important, I think. Um, it's high time we went to some questions. So um, we have a microphone. We have two microphones, I think. Who would like to go first? Uh, we've got one over here, and then we will see where we go from there. And then we've got um, a lady down the front here, please. So. I have some uh, background in this. Uh, not only 20 years ago when I helped set up the superannuation scheme with uh, Paul Keating, but more recently I've been a consultant for the past 10 years. Now, what you have been skating over, the elephant in the room, is that very, the majority of the industry superannuation schemes are far better run than the private schemes. They are cheaper and they have a better uh, outcome. When I helped set up the superannuation and it was, uh, the idea was to let the unions into the business, I said to Paul, I shouldn't uh, name drop, but I said, look, uh, the, the, why are you letting the unions into the business, uh, this will lead to trouble. And he said, well, this is a Labour Party, we have to do it. But as it's turned out, the union-run super schemes are far, far better than the private schemes. And uh, now my consultancy experience of the past 10 years, uh, looking at the way private industry run, it runs, is uh, I'm sad to say that I found that most company directors, well, uh, looking at the company, company directors, senior company directors and senior executives, is that uh, between 10 and 15% of that group are thieves. I think that's a little hard. Can I ask you to come and to the point of your I question? I'm not. Uh, and, uh, and I think we'll the, take that as a comment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, about the 80% of the rest are totally incompetent and just hold their jobs because of their associations. So, uh, and so the question, and question is? And the question is, basically, now we have a, uh, could have a system of defaults. Why not be simple about it? and default all these small underperforming funds into these well-run industry 
funds, which are yep. okay. straight so, and okay, I think that that's very a, competent I, I, and honest union people. I think it's a really interesting question about, look, you've got a long tail of underperformers. You know, why do we tolerate this? Um, and and got, for those who've been kind of captured, when I was kind of describing the green circles and the purple circles, the green circles are the industry funds by and large, some down here, but mostly up here, and the purple ones are the retail funds. Some up here, but mostly down there. Um, so that's the—that's not the elephant, right? That's the kind of circles. But the, the, they do actually—if you kind of like look at them well, sideways, they look like. If we had a whole another hour to talk <laughs> about performance, we could, which we didn't get to. But that's—that's that's a whole other area. I'm—I'm I'm not going to debate that now. Yeah. Um, and I don't—I don't agree with you ab at all. Um, sorry, but I'm not going to—I'm not going to agree with you. There are uh, a large number of un underperforming funds. Um, in that tail, there are some very good funds of all stripes up in that top sec section and, and, and funds of all stripes in that bottom section. So to your point, why do we tolerate the bad ones? And that's the point we're at now. We're saying, let's, let's fix this system. Let's make it that, that, that all funds, you either shape up or ship out. Of course, the, Agree. The, I've always wanted to meet the person who was in the room with Paul because my question is, if you'd known what you knew now, and Paul had known what he knew now. And you'd gone into him and said, Paul, I've got a brilliant system. We're going to have people compulsory move money from, you know, take a pay, essentially it's a payroll tax, and we're going to put it in accounts, and we're going to, you know, send you a statement every six months. We're going to invest it, and then we're going to give it back to you when you retire. And we're going to set up a, a government department to do this, and it's going to cost $30 billion a year to run. It would have been a very different conversation. <laughs> I have 37 years of experience in superannuation, government, retail, corporate, self-managed industry. So I, I know a bit about it. The 30 billion in costs is largely, I submit, a function of the constant tinkering with the rules of superannuation. I cite, for example, the changes that came about as a result of the 2017 budget with the transfer balance reporting, with the capital gains tax reset. The cost of developing software and of training people in how to use that contributes enormously to the cost and it also contributes enormously to the disengagement of members in superannuation because mm. they really cannot understand it. Yeah, you make a great point. Um, and every budget, I think, bar one in recent times has tinkered with super. So, so can it, I agree? It, at one stage, it, around 1990, there'd been an average of one change every eight days mm. in superannuation. When I started out, the legislation was this thick. It's now this thick. Yeah. So, so can I suggest two things? One is I, I would absolutely agree to you that, with you rather that, that, that changing the rules like that makes life more complicated and increases costs. That's agreement number one. Uh, agreement number two, however, would be to say, by and large, that complexity is driven by the industry itself. Every time there's a reform, it comes up with how to make it kind of completely perfect, and that adds to the complexity. And, and if you look at what happened with the government's proposals on taxation, they put through something relatively simple, and by the time the industry had fiddled with it, it was extremely complicated about exactly how this, that and the other was going to get indexed. Don't forget but, 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 regulators but, but the key issue I would suggest is this. It, would getting rid of all of that stuff reduce the cost of the industry? Answer, no question, of course it would. However, 
There are funds that deliver perfectly good returns to members and perfectly good services to members at a cost of around about a half a percent of assets. But the industry average is 1.2. So 0.7 is the industry not delivering. Some part of that 0.5 is the complexity. Um, <laughs> and, and so I would suggest to you, I accept that the costs are an issue here, but 0.7 has got nothing to do with all of that. 0.7's got something to do with something else. 0.7 has got something to do with people Well, most of that's come out, so there's not a lot of trailing commissions left in... In um, super. In super. No. And uh, look, I, I think too, if we think about the future, think about technology and how that is going to, to really to really help. It already has. We've got um, single touch payroll, which has come, which is here now. And that's made, made things much simpler for employers and employees when it comes to super. So those sorts of things with these um, new digital funds, there's technology, you know, the, the disruptors, the fintech disruptors, that's going to be, I think, um, really, really interesting and, and great. And I have my daughter in the in the audience here who's now... How many super funds did you combine through the one digital fund? Four. She had four. So these are the sorts of things that are now changing the lives of young people that, that kind of blighted ours in a way. Um, so I think don't, don't, lose, um, don't lose heart. Um, I think the system's um, the system's system's not broken. It's a great system. This is the third best system in the world, according to Mercer. Um, <laughs> let's go to the gentleman up here in the middle. Uh, thank you, uh, and thank you for contributing to the debate, both of you. Um, just a really quick question. I think you both agree that there are a lot of superannuation funds, many more thousands than any normal person could expect to. I don't know. Understand. Uh, I'm not interested in why. I'm just interested in what you would suggest to reduce that pool to a much more manageable one. Default or not, just what would you do to reduce mm. the number? Well, I, I think um, we're still looking into this. And we, as I said before, we don't really... We're not real fans of the 10 best in show because we think that's got implications for the economy. Um, we'd like to see the bar lifted on a whole lot of things, you know, all the criteria, a lot of criteria that that aren't there at the moment. So we'd like to see the bar lifted right up here so everything that falls below that can shape up or ship out. And then you're left with a good, I can't give you a number, but I think John, you, you like 10 and he eloquently <laughs> argued that, so. Um, mm. But I think you're asking about the, the, the very large number of products as well as funds. Oh, the products, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, so look, I think I think we need to accept that some people are not going to show a lot of attention to this, and I think it's fair enough for us to be saying, look, for funds that are, you know, particularly the closed ones that are you know performing really badly, and to be blunt, they know who they are, um, and by and large they're performing really badly because they're charging really high fees, and they can do that precisely because people are in them and not very interested. I think there's a lot to be said for you know we're going to start setting some arbitrary standards. You know, maybe it's fees of total fees of 3% or something and saying, look, anything over that, we're just going to mm. shut you down. But not just fees. You've also got to look at outcomes. You've also got to look at performance. Yep. You've got to look at, yes. you know, in our view, governance, transparency. You know, that that's a big one too. You know, make it simpler for people to the point that this that this um, lady made. You know, think, it is complex. It's still too complex and it shouldn't be. 
It's come to 7.15, ladies and gentlemen, so um, we're going to need to wrap things up. Um, I want to do a couple of uh, quick things before I do um, and before Lynn comes back. Uh, firstly, um, there's two people in this room who've actually um, contributed enormously to this debate, and I just wanted to acknowledge them. Uh, Will, um, who's uh, worked for a long time, uh, for um, about nine months, I think, at Grattan and uh, ultimately, uh, working with us on retirement incomes. Uh, Cam Harrison, um, who uh, worked uh, on uh, much of the super... Um, uh, savings report and trying to understand um, why it was and how it was that essentially we were paying a lot more than we should and what a better model would be. Um, and unfortunately, progress in public policy requires people to kind of toil at the um, uh, at the coalface of this stuff for a long time. And, and both Will and Cam have done a fantastic job. So thank you for your contribution. Um, and I also just wanted to point out that, um, you know, as I said, we would like to think that Grattan has played a material part uh, in what we're talking about tonight. Uh, and that um, this is one of the clearest examples we have, actually, of something where we can point at it and say, well, success has always got lots of parents, um, but we'd like to think we are one in this room. Um, the work that we do costs money. Um, uh, we don't have private um, uh, association members who, you know, can pay for us. Uh, and so we are um, ultimately um, uh, dependent in the long run for contributions from the public. Uh, and I note that it's not yet the end of the financial year. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a very helpful donate now button uh, in the top left hand side of the um, Grattan website. Uh, and it's, um, it's only about three swipes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so, and then finally, thank you, Sally. Um, uh, you are an, uh, an eloquent, thoughtful, um, extremely well-informed uh, thinker um, uh, for your industry in terms of thinking through these issues, uh, thinking about what they mean for Australians. And can I thank you very, very much um, for your contribution this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Over to Lynn. Thank you so much. John and Sally for that enlightening discussion. I, for one, will be going home and checking my super very, very carefully. <laughs> I'll also be doing much more planning uh, for when I retire. So thank you very much, and I'll be first in line when you come back. Um, I'd also like to thank the Grattan Institute for their continued partnership with the library um, that sees us host such an animated and informative discussion. So thank you. Um, finally, thank you to everybody that's come out this evening. Um, and asked really, really good questions, um, very thought-provoking. So I hope you'll join us for another session at the library, and thank you so much for joining us this evening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.